Welcome to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. We had a great show today and touched on so many news topics. I checked in with a neuroscientist about how permanent standard time is better for our health. A throat cancer specialist shared tips on early detection of the disease. Master gardener Brian Minter gave us his top indoor gardening tips. And Tlaunk Square at the Vancouver Art Gallery, that's the uh, plaza outside the VAG, went through $9.5 million in renovations about a decade ago to become one of the city's most coveted public spaces. But one of the original designers is dismayed at how it gets rented out to the film industry. All that and more coming up on the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Let's dive in. Welcome back. This morning, we pushed back our clocks at 2 a.m. by an hour. How are you feeling? I could have kept sleeping, which doesn't seem to make much sense, but it's no surprise that daylight saving time is a controversial topic. We've long heard the debate about the benefits to the economy, but what about our brains? What about our health? My next guest is Joseph Takahashi, chair of the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. He is a proponent for permanent standard time. That's what we're falling back to. Welcome to the show, Dr. Takahashi. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Well, you say permanent standard time, what we are falling back to now through March, is much better for our health. And I think most people prefer daylight saving time from what we've seen in um, polls here in our province of BC. What are the negative health consequences of daylight saving time? Well, um, let me take a step back. We, you know, we all have 24-hour circadian clocks, uh, and we know from uh, research in the last uh, 25 years that these clocks are genetically determined. And one of the surprises in understanding how in how our clocks function is they're regulated by specific jet set of genes that turn on and off each day, and every cell in our body has one. And what we've learned over the last couple decades is that uh, desynchronization of our clocks, either through jet lag, shift work, or even that one-hour shift back and forth, can perturb our clock systems, and our clocks regulate all the essential functions of our body, metabolism, especially, uh, but, uh, you know, new work shows that uh, it's involved in regulating immune function, it's involved in cancer susceptibility. Uh, and so one of the reasons that we really favor standard time is there's an incredible study from the National Cancer Institute that looks at cancer institutes by county across the U United States. And uh, what's amazing is on the western border of each time zone, there's a higher incidence of cancer than on the eastern border, okay? And that happens four times across the United States. That border is completely artificial. It's, it's determined by us, not by nature. And so why would there be such a difference on either side of that border? And the reason is, is because our clocks are chronically one hour or close to an hour out of sync uh, and and the western border is worse and it turns out that permanent daylight savings time would be the equivalent of being on that extreme western border so you talk so about really, 
because of the health consequences. Mm -hmm. Sorry. You talk about our circadian rhythm, our biological Mm -hmm. clock. What is the impact of switching time on our biological clock by an hour? Yeah, so an hour seems like a very small change. In the fall, most people uh, can delay an hour more easily. In the spring, advancing that hour uh, is actually very difficult for many people. True. Um, I'm with you on that one. (laughs) That's right. And some people take two or three weeks to make that one-hour adjustment. Uh, now Now, the reason that happens is our clocks are a little bit slower than 24 hours. So it's easier for us to delay or slow down, but it's hard for us to uh, gain an hour or advance because our clocks are longer than 24 hours on average. About 80% of us have uh, clocks, if you measured them in the laboratory, that was that are longer than 24. And only about 20% of us uh, have shorter running clocks that are less than 24 hours. Those are those early birds. So you say that permanent standard time is much more natural fit for our circadian rhythm, for a biological clock. What are the negative health consequences of daylight saving time? Well, as as I mentioned, um, it would increase or make worse this tendency for cancer incidence to be higher when we're um, equivalent to daylight savings time, which is on the western, extreme western edge of a time zone. Um, And so depending on where you are, I mean, I think right now we're eight months on daylight savings times and only four months uh, on standard. It would make just that four month change would make it even worse. So going back an hour today at 2 a.m., should that feel more natural to everyone? Uh, Yeah, it will, um, because that's how we have evolved over tens of thousands of years uh, before artificial light. Our, Our entire biology has been optimized to be synchronized with the day night cycle. Mm-hmm. You talked about uh, the effects on the immune system. You mentioned some of the physical changes that come with the time change. These metabolic consequences, like things like lipid levels going up, or some of us notice that we're hungry when we shouldn't be hungry. What does that have to do with the time? Yeah, so again, um, disruption or going out of sync changes our hormonal and signaling systems in the body. And so we, uh, studies have shown that we lose glucose regulation um, and then uh, fat and cholesterol levels can go up in the blood. But the other funny thing that happens is some of the signals that tell us that we're full, for example, um, when we're eating actually are also out of sync and give us the wrong signal. And so there's a tendency for us to uh, eat too much because we're not getting that appropriate feedback signal. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr. Takahashi. We really appreciate you being on the show today. 
Sure. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope Canada doesn't go to daylight savings time. <laughs> Remains to be seen. It's been legislated in the province uh, where we're broadcasting in BC, but it hasn't been implemented. So we'll have to see about that. Thank you again so much for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Takahashi, professor and chair of neuroscience at University of Texas Southwestern. We changed our clocks today at 2 a.m. to fall back. He says it's better for our health, for our brains to stay on permanent standard time. And I got to say, it makes sense to me. I want daylight in the morning, not artificially granted in the late afternoon. I'm going to go with the neuroscientist on this one. Welcome back to the show. On Friday, Premier John Horgan announced that he was diagnosed with throat cancer. Here to talk about throat cancer is the chairman of the board of the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance, Dr. Terry Day. Welcome to the show, Dr. Day. Hi, thank you, Roger. Good morning. Good morning. I understand that there are different types of throat cancer that affect different areas of the throat. Can you give us a brief background? Yes, absolutely. Throat cancer can be divided into uh, terms called the pharynx, which is another term for the throat. And it could be nasopharynx, oropharynx, or larynx. The larynx is the voice box. The oropharynx is actually the most common throat cancer. Many have called it an epidemic now in North America. And many of those now are related to the human papillomavirus. And so These uh, seem to be associated with HPV, and they seem to be rising in incidence. And how common is throat cancer? Well, it's uh, it's been emerging really over the last two decades. People did not realize that HPV was associated with it until the early 2000s. Before that, they thought it was only related to tobacco use, and so every year since then, it's been rising. It has already surpassed cervical cancer in both incidence and mortality. So it's uh, one of the fastest rising cancers that we see today. And so that's why everybody's recommending both boys and girls get the HPV vaccine when they can. Yeah, we've seen the HPV vaccine uh, bring down cases of cervical cancer. Is it expected to do the same then for throat cancers? That is true. Uh, It is expected to do the same. The Interesting thing, however, is that throat cancer often develops uh, several decades after people are exposed to HPV. So it's more common in the 40 to 60-year-old age group. And so people don't realize that they can get it later on. And so oftentimes parents won't advocate for it for their children. So it's something that they do need to think about for their child's future. Okay. What are the symptoms? Well, for the HPV throat cancer, uh, actually, they don't have any pain. Uh, Most commonly, they will have a lump or swelling in one side of the neck or the throat, and it's painless. There's no sore throat, typically. There's no bleeding, and so it's typically noticed by uh, the person or a friend or family member, and they said, oh, what is that swelling in in the neck, on the side of the neck? And so it's important to get that checked out if it lasts for more than two weeks. And what are we talking about in terms of size of that swelling? Well, any size that uh, shows up on one side that's not on the other. So typically, uh, even a half an inch or more uh, would be considered to be abnormal. And most commonly, these throat cancers arise in the tonsil or the back of the tongue. 
and then they spread to lymph nodes in the neck. I understand there's no proven way to prevent throat cancer, but what are the risk factors? Well, yeah, so the risk factors being uh, smoking and HPV, the HPV vaccines now expected to prevent them in future decades. Uh, tobacco use obviously can help prevent them as well. Okay. Does, does stress play a role? Well, I think uh, most studies haven't proven that as a direct cause, but many believe that stress may be an indirect cause as its effect on your immune system. I see. What is the medical process following when someone is diagnosed with throat cancer? What are the first steps there? Well, I think the first thing is get checked. If you have a swelling or lump in your neck or your throat, get checked. Typically a biopsy and or a CAT scan will be done. And then uh, you'll see a specialist and uh, there's specialists all over Canada and the U.S. Um, they'll typically recommend surgery or radiation treatments. And if caught early, the cure rate is excellent. And so that's why we advocate for early diagnosis. Is uh, early diagnosis, early detection, is there something that we can do ourselves to check our throats, our necks? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, coincidentally, today's the first day of Oral Head Neck Cancer Awareness Week, uh, sponsored by the Head Neck Cancer Alliance. People can go to headandneck.org, and there's a screen of self-examination of how you can examine yourself for head and neck cancer. And if you have a swelling in the neck, a spot in your mouth or throat or swelling in your throat that wasn't there before, definitely get checked out. Okay. And you said that uh, it's become a little bit more common in the last, what was it, 20 years. Do we know why that is? That's a great question. And I think uh, that has not been proven yet. And people are studying uh, patients that have had their tonsils out for non-cancer-related reasons to see when the virus began to develop into the tonsils. And so that research is ongoing, and nobody's proven as to why it's now emerging uh, in the HPV uh, oropharynx cancers. And I imagine there's some research being done about that now? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and that's probably the majority of the trials, and a lot of it has to do now there's uh, minimally invasive surgery with robotic surgery and advanced techniques with radiation therapy uh, that reduces the side effects of the treatment. And so people can get through treatment much better, a good cure rate, and have less side effects from the treatment. I see. Well, Dr. Day, thank you so much for being with us this morning and giving us some background on throat cancer. Oh, it's my pleasure and uh, best wishes to the, to the premier and thanks for uh, advocating for early detection for these uh, cancers. Thank Appreciate you again, time. Dr. Day. Bye now. Yep. Have a great day. That was Dr. Terry Day, chairman of the board for the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance. Premier John Horgan announced on Friday that he has been diagnosed with throat cancer. I hope he gets the rest he needs and recovers quickly. I know early detection is such an important part of recovery, of recovering quickly, and that he and his family remain strong and positive throughout this time is so important. 
Good morning to you all. I'm Raji Sohal. And well, with winter on its way, a lot of us have long said goodbye to our tomato vines and herb planters on the patio. Although I have spot a few lingering dahlias in my neighborhood. I don't know how those are still alive. Well, it's still no reason not to garden. You just got to take it indoors. There are some things to do differently with your indoor plants over the winter months. So here to talk tips is Brian Minter, co-owner of Minter Country Garden. Store. Welcome, Brian. Raji, good morning. Uh, and you're absolutely right. And I'm so glad you're taking a few minutes to talk about this because there's such a, a huge demand for people wanting to make uh, their home more beautiful, more comfortable, and all the health benefits of having plants inside. But as we move into this time of year, it's one of the more difficult times of year for plants to do well inside our homes. Yeah, uh, we've got so much to talk about, but what are some of the things we need to take into consideration with our indoor plants this season? Well, Raj, if you stop the rain, that would be one good thing <laughs> because we have the quality of light. We, we know we're losing light, yes. uh, you know, each day uh, as the sun moves south. and and uh, But the quality of light, because of all the cloudy weather, uh, really makes it difficult. And plants need light to uh, produce food, to go through that photosynthetic process. So I think number one is any windows we have are precious. It doesn't matter whether they're south windows at this time of year or, you know, north or east, and always plants prefer indirect light, but move them near the windows, possibly, you know, wherever you can possibly do that. And if it's just not possible, please get some of the new LED lighting uh, with the full-spectrum lights on them. And, uh, oh, my gosh, that really helps plants. You know, our greenhouse industry has to use them this time of year to get quality either food or quality plants. And the same thing is true in our home. And uh, they're, if you get LEDs, they're, they're less expensive. But the lighting is probably the most critical thing. And the second thing is uh, the heat. Um, the more we uh, put the temperature up in our homes, Raji, the, what happens is uh, the humidity disappears. Fireplaces are particularly tough on that day. Oh, yeah. They just suck the humidity away. Uh, so uh, the temperature's down a wee bit. If you possibly can, it's going to save you money. Uh, but uh, the plants, uh, if you can keep them cooler, um, you know, or if you have a heat vent near a window, if you can please shut that vent, uh, that would be awfully good. It really would. The third thing, which is uh, so very important, is, is watering. And so many folks that just haven't got the, the knack of watering. Um, they, I think overwatering is the worst thing you could do. And for smaller plants, you know, up to an 8 or 10-inch pot and 4-inch pots, the secret is to pick up the plant and feel the weight. And most of us instinctively know if it's light that it needs water. Mm -hmm. But if it's heavy, leave it alone. Uh And uh, just a couple times a week, uh, just to check would be good. Uh, We do plant maintenance for a lot of businesses. We only go once a week. And sometimes, Roger, we don't water once a week. Oh, wow. So they, they can dry out. And one thing that's absolutely critical uh, is so very important is people think, oh, my plant's not doing well. I'm going to put it in a bigger pot. That's the worst thing you can possibly do. Um, plants love to be root bound. All, you know, all plants, they really do. When the roots hit the outside edge of the pot, uh, the plant is comfortable. It grows. But when you put it in a bigger pot, it's fresh soil. The plants are not growing in the northern hemisphere as much as time of year. So the roots can never hit the edge. They're sitting in soil that really retains too much moisture, and they begin to rot and go backwards. So, Oh, um, Brian, I mean, I'm so feeling seen think, here because <laughs> I was just about to repot a plant. It, it's bursting at the seams. It's, yeah. I thought it really needed a new pot and fresh soil, but you're saying I should hold off. 
Oh, my goodness, yes. And uh, until when, until we get back into the longer days, end of March, as we're, we're you know, finally going to get some, some longer days and, and better quality light, but usually mid-April. And uh, it's a very important issue. Before you, even though a plant looks like it might be root-bound, always just carefully knock it out of the pot, first of all, and look at the roots. And uh, if the roots are, are really tight against the pot and there's not much soil, of course you put it in a plant or a pot rather about two inches larger than the one it's currently in. So don't go from a small pot to a big pot, but just inch it up, um, you know, by two inches at a time. But end of April is probably a great time to do that. But the fact that the plant is root bound, that's a great sign. It really is. Okay. You mentioned something important there about the kind of light. So neither fluorescent nor incandescent lighting provides the proper light spectrum? I, I did an article recently in the Vancouver Sun about this very topic and talking to lighting experts. And I know for a fact, and all of us know, that in many office buildings, uh, you know, there are plants around and with fluorescent light, at least they're getting light, which is, you know, plants need that to be able to grow. But um, in talking with some of the experts, when you get a full spectrum light, uh, in other words, uh, the, it's almost sun-like in terms of getting this full spectrum where the plant gets everything it needs in terms of the quality of light, the types of light that they get, uh, and that makes a big difference. And something I didn't know is, um, you know, he said it's best to put your light, you can put them on a timer, but during our natural hours of light and darkness, plants perform better if that's when, uh, you know, we actually leave lights on. So when we're away during the day, even though it's a little bit dark, it's probably better to have those lights on during the daytime and the early evening rather than leave them on at night, which I thought was quite interesting. Hmm. You also mentioned something else that is relevant for my home. I normally like to keep the heat down at home and wear wool sweaters and slippers, better for my heating bill. I think it's better for my skin. It seems better for my plants too, but my studio office has the heating running full, really high, (laughs) and my plants are so sad. Yeah, they are. They they really are. Uh, That's a more difficult situation. Uh, a little uh, couple of things you could do to overcome that. If you can get, um, and the plant's not too big, an appropriate saucer uh, uh, under the plants. And uh, if you could just put a few bits of the small stones in amongst that and put water in the saucer, that water completely, completely uh, evaporates during the daytime. And uh, that evaporation goes in and around the plant. So having a saucer with water around uh, under the plants, but not directly to the pot sitting in it, just on some stones above, that helps a lot. The other thing is it's awkward in, in some of our newer homes and, and so on is anytime you can mist them, uh, uh, which really helps that water misting, even a couple of times a day, uh, that humidity provided is great. And you can get misters with very fine mist, so it really doesn't sit anywhere and make a mess. But um, it's so important, and especially with citrus. So many people have really difficult times with citrus over this time of year, and, uh, and misting helps them greatly. That's great. I've got time for one more tip. I'm wondering about succulents since they are so popular for indoor gardening. Oh, that's a great question, and thank you for that. Um, And here's the issue. Uh, There are succulents uh, that really tolerate lower light. Um, There's a whole series of those today. And then the other ones that, you know, Echeverius and and so many different varieties that really need, you know, more light. All you can do is is keep them as dry as you can. Like, don't overwater them. That's, That's kind of a bad thing. So keep them just moist and put them in the brightest window you have. They do have to be in a south window, west window, 
when we do get that light, they, they helps greatly. But those especially do need the overhead lighting to, to give them the, the light intensity they, they after our succulent. And just watch the watering on them, as we said. Keep them, uh, don't let them go bone dry, but keep them just moist. And just, you know, coax them through the winter until we get into the longer days and they can go back outside. But most of them, with, you know, that type of treatment should survive okay. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for your indoor gardening tips today. Oh, okay. you're so welcome. It's wonderful to talk to you. And, and everybody, uh, we have to take care of our plants. They're so important to us today, and we want to make sure they survive well. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Brian. That's Brian Minter, co-owner of Minter Country Garden Store, a gardening expert. Thanks for joining us. Well, the city of Vancouver has called Schlaunk Square, which is formerly the Vancouver Art Gallery North Plaza, one of the city's most important public urban spaces. But according to my next guest, the prime location went through $9.5 million in renovations and yet isn't being used for the purpose that it was intended. Architect and UBC professor Matthew Souls was a part of the design team for the redesign of that area around the Vancouver Art Gallery. He's concerned by what he says is the frequent use of the space as a parking lot and staging area for film productions. Good morning, Matthew. Morning. How are you? Great. Welcome to the show. You were a part of the design team for the redesign of the plaza outside the Vancouver Art Gallery, uh, Schlaunk Square. Take me back. What was the vision for the redesign of that space? Well, the vision was really to create um, a multifunctional uh, space that had beautiful paving, um, seating, a variety of types. Um, for people to gather uh, for celebrations, uh, meet people, a, a kind of, uh, you know, a rendezvous point, uh, a place where workers in the area could gather to have lunch and, you know, to support all of the unknown and amazing things that happen in a vibrant city. So, you know, people dancing, performing, protests periodically. So really the idea was to make a comfortable, attractive space uh, fitting our, our great city. Yeah, we've seen other phenomenal common grounds in public square spaces like uh, at Trafalgar Square in London or Bryant Park in New York City. Do you know if they see that kind of thing there uh, with uh, the spaces being taken up by uh, film productions and whatnot? You know... Uh Different cities use their spaces in different ways, but I think um, when you look at the great plazas of the world, they are first and foremost for the citizens, everyday people, to use in the ways that they see fit. And there's very uh, rare disruptions to that when it comes to something like parking vehicles or staging for films. So, you know, take Union Square in San Francisco. I mean, to my knowledge, it is not ever used for such a such a thing. I mean, it is transformed over the course of the year for different festivals and events. You know, sometimes there's a skating rink put on it. Sometimes there's a Christmas tree. Um, sometimes there's small little pavilions for markets. Um, but never, but never a place to, to to park vehicles, to park large trucks, and 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 in which the space is um, entirely taken over by the parking of vehicles. Okay, you're saying that's what you see at the Vancouver Art Gallery Square. 
Yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, it's it's not something that happens every day. Um, and in fact, it seems that most of the days that, the, you know, if we look at the calendar year, that the space is open for, for people to use it in however they see fit. However, I'm concerned that that um, the, the, the frequency in which cars and vehicles and large trucks are parked there devalues and demeans the space. So I think, you, you know, we have to ask, um, you know, this is a very important public space for the city of Vancouver. We don't have many of these types of spaces, and especially in front of such a beautiful historic courthouse building that is now the Vancouver Art Gallery. So I think it demeans and devalues the space by parking large vehicles on it. And I think a really important, or, you know, we could imagine, um, you know, if someone spends a lot of energy and time making their front yard of their house into a beautiful, a beautiful and attractive and inviting space, they would never periodically, um, you know, park their vehicles directly on the lawn. You know, even if you did that just a few days in the month, you know, your neighbors would think you were crazy. Um, <laughs> it would kind of devalue and demean the the significance of that space. So I think when we periodically treat the, the, the plaza in this way, it devalues it in the hearts and minds of Vancouver citizens. And really, um, the city's goals, explicit goals, are to make the downtown core into a more attractive pedestrian walkable environment. And uh, this uh, use of the, the square in this way really, uh, I think, takes away from that mandate, that great mandate that the city has. So you mentioned the design process and what the logic was like there. When you go back to that time, do you remember a lot of discussion about how to optimize the space for parking uh, measures, for uh, parking for these uh, film productions and whatnot? Well, I mean, one really important characteristic of the square is that it is a, a hard paved surface, right? Um, so we spent a lot of time, the design team, which was Nick Milkovich Architects, half a collaborative in my firm, um, designing a very beautiful and attractive paving pattern. So this hard surface has a lot of thought placed into it. But very consciously, we designed it in such a way that vehicles could go onto it and, and do various things. Two stage events, um, you know, if you're setting up a large Christmas tree or installing a festival setting, you know, you need to have the ability to put vehicles on there. And there was absolutely conversations about its continued uh, potential use as, as a place to stage films. But um, I really think that, we're, you know, we're a number of years in since the design has been completed. And the pandemic, of, of all things, has shown us how important it is to have reliable, high-quality public space for people to gather. Um, so I think it's really, count, even though the plaza was designed for the capability to have vehicles on it to allow for maximum flexibilities, which I think is wise and intelligent, um, I think, uh, you know, we now have to sort of reassess and ask ourselves if it's being used for the optimal and best use. And I think a really key thing here is the notion of reliability. You know, if that space is to, you know, the millions of dollars that were spent on it is going to play this important role in the lives of everyday Vancouverites, it needs to reliably be able for them to use it. So, you know, you know, if you periodically placing these vehicles all over it and completely changing how it feels and essentially making, um, you know, everyday citizens not welcome there, 
And you don't know when this is going to happen. So if you're planning to meet someone down there, hang out with your friends, and you make your way down there, it's like, oh, wait, we, we can't really be here. The film industry is taking it over. I think that lack of reliability is really critical for, um, you know, uh, problematizing the place of the square in the people's hearts and minds. Some people will say, okay, 25 films a year there transforms the space for the better. I would love to know how how that transforms the space for the better, because every time I've gone there when it's being used for film uh, film parking, it's, you know, it's clear that the vehicles have taken over the entire space and it's not a very nice place to spend any time with anyone. Uh, it, it's become a parking lot. So, I mean, of course, filming is uh, a revenue source for the city, um, for the permitting and whatnot. So it's not to say that the using it for a parking lot periodically doesn't provide some purpose for the city. It does provide a revenue purpose. And filming is an important component of our economy and our culture in the city. So it's not to demean the, the importance of the film industry in any way. I think, uh, I, I think it's just that we as Vancouverites and those in charge of managing the city have to figure out more um, friendly ways that support everyday citizens while allowing filming to happen in the city. I mean, when it's used, when I've, I've gone there many times when it's being used as a staging area and the space is completely uh, transformed in such a way that it's resistant to uh, everyday use by the average person. Thank you, Matthew Souls, for coming on and sharing your perspective on that. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Have a great Sunday. That was Matthew Souls. He's a designer and architect. He was part of the original redesign team for the Schleunk Square, the plaza at Vancouver Art Gallery. He's critical of how the space gets used, rented out by the city to the movie industry when he says it's supposed to be open to the public. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.